The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning. It's like uh, the fish and the loaves you guys multiplied from last night. The room looks fuller. Everybody sleep well? Yeah, I, I slept well, but it still didn't feel like enough. Strangely, the more sleep I get, the more I need. So it's a strange thing. I, I'm, I'm really glad to be out here, though, and the Cedars was really quiet last night, and I got a great night's sleep. I hope you did as well. I'm going to try to help you stay awake this morning, okay? But I have a feeling that something in some of our spirits is going to want to shut down listening to this message. <laughs> so... And I know this because there are certain messages that are not difficult to hear intellectually, but they're really hard to receive spiritually. So I want to just pray for us one more time. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that the people you most want to speak to this morning will least feel like hearing these things today. And yet I know that you love those very people. You love them so much that you want to give your whole life and heart to them. So I pray that you would set free those whose hearts are bound up in anger, who struggle, who don't even realize how much damage their anger is doing to them and to the people they love around them. We know, Lord, that it is so hard to control the fire of anger that burns in our hearts. So I pray like water, your spirit will come and quench the heat of that fire and replace it with peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I kind of gave away what the uh, sin is this morning. We're going to talk about is wrath. I like the word wrath better than anger because anger sounds like this character flaw that you have to work through a little bit and that everybody's got a little bit. We're talking about a a level of anger that has become a life-defining problem and one that everyone who knows you would, if they were doing a word association, I don't know if you would have the courage to do something. We did it once at our our leaders' retreat and we never did it again because everybody wanted to fire me afterwards. But we wore white T-shirts And then we invited people around us, the other leaders, to write down one word which they associate with us, good or bad. Just we wanted an accurate mirror held up to us of how we are seen and experienced by other people. So everyone was given a Sharpie and they wrote on your back. And you're you're not allowed to know, find out who's writing because you're like, oh, I remember you wrote on the upper shoulder. You just write a word, and then you go back to your room, and you look. You take your shirt off in your room, and you, you look at the back, and you go, oh, oh, oh. And would you have the courage to know what one word everyone in this room would write on the back of your shirt? For some of us, we'd be surprised to find how often the word anger or angry pops up. Some might even write words like toxic, nuclear, cold. Uh, There's a word we made up uh, in our house called permitated that's permanently irritated. (laughs) All day long about everything. You're just, oh, God, I hate everything. Mm, It stinks to be around people like that. It's just life-draining to be around people like that. Of all the seven deadly sins... Wrath may be the most literally deadly. Because if you let anger burn long enough, very often it's not just ruining your mood, it starts to translate into acts of real violence. There's many forms of violence. It can be physical, but there can be emotional, verbal, financial, organizational violence, power dynamic violence. There's so many ways that anger won't stay inside here. It must not just burn in me. It must set the earth on fire. I can't just stay angry within myself for very long. Eventually, you need to burn too, especially because you're the reason that I'm angry. 
Anger is arguably the most destructive, visibly, of all the seven deadly sins. And yet, what's confusing is that throughout Scripture, if you're reading with, with your eyes open, you see that God is described as angry sometimes. Even Jesus, who, you know, like Pastor Mark Driscoll, the one thing I remember most from what he said was, uh, I, it's hard to follow a guy who looks like a hairdresser. You know, those traditional European pictures of Jesus with the wavy L'Oreal hair, and he's at the door knocking, you know, like that guy. He goes, I could, I, it's hard to worship a God I could beat up, you know. <laughs> so, but it's that, that picture of Jesus depicts him as how we like to think of him, gentle, soft, calm, intimate, loving. But even that Jesus is portrayed at times as angry. In fact, I think the only swear word recorded in the New Testament is spoken out of the mouth of Jesus quoting something else. He was upset at the state of the world that he found when he walked here physically among us. And at times it made him truly angry. It even got physical once in a while. So how do we make sense of this that Almost every mention of anger in the Bible is negative, and yet God himself is angry from time to time. Well, part of the way to decode this is there is a legitimate place for righteous anger. And when we think about the places where God was angry with us the most, there are a few places where we cannot identify with the anger of God because we are not like God. If we were perfect in our love for other people, if we were perfect in our provision for other people, if we had never made a mistake, never hated them, never betrayed them, never failed them, then we could be righteously angry all the time over everything like God. But the truth is, you know, God often got angry because people were ungrateful towards him or forgetful of his past faithfulness. And when he saw that, or, or they were scared when they should have been confident because he's standing right there. He's like, why are you scared? I'm right here. I take that personally when you're scared and I'm right there. So God would get angry over things that look like personal slights. Like, why would you doubt when I'm right here? How could you not be thankful when I've done so many good things? And often we inappropriately translate that kind of godly anger to ourselves. And we're like, yeah, why aren't you more grateful? See, but we're not allowed to be angry legitimately over those personal slights because unlike God, we have not been perfectly loving, perfectly faithful, perfect in our provision for others. If you've been God to people, then you get to be as angry as God when others are imperfect back to you. But how many would raise your hands and say, I have been. I'm so confused by what you're saying. I am God. I I am perfect. Everyone around me, I've loved perfectly. I've taught perfectly. I've trained perfectly. I've provided. Be quiet. None of us have done that. So when other people repay our imperfection with their imperfection, do you legitimately get to be like God and say, I'm angry too? No, God says, that's a mirror for you, to humble you, to make you realize you are like me, but you are not me. But there are other forms of God's anger which we can legitimately mirror and be angry with him. It's a righteous anger, and there are two things that seem consistently to trigger God's righteous anger in a form that we can emulate. And those are when people acted in injustice. In other words, when they acted in ways that violated his character and his commands, when they treated other people in ways that were clearly immoral, unfair, and cruel. That would always get God very upset. So injustice always makes God angry. And the other thing that seemed to always get God angry is when he saw in us hatred for someone else. What's interesting is that when somebody challenged Jesus, what is the greatest command? In other words, he asked Jesus, God in the flesh, the question we've all asked of God, what do you want from us? I mean, it's like a million laws. At the time Jesus walked there, there were over 670 laws in the Jewish law. That's a lot to remember. I can barely remember the Ten Commandments. How would you like to sit there and go, what was 648 again? Who can keep track? And so this guy's like, I can't take it anymore. What is the most important thing? Like, if we fail every other thing, what's the one? And what did God say? Jesus said, love God 
and love other people. I can't stand when I see the absence of love. You should love other people. Now, I'm not going to get political. Don't, don't anticipate I'm going to take this into a political direction. What I'm saying is these are the times when we can most legitimately join God and be angry with God and identify with Him. Is when that is our indignation. But if it's just a personal slight, like, how could you say that I haven't ever done anything for you? How could you, I've said this eight times, how could you ignore me? Because you're not God, you're not perfect. That spouse which, who is letting you down is a spouse that has to be married to you. Those children which are disappointing your children, you've raised. So I, the point is, until we have achieved the perfection of God, we can only be righteously angry over real sin. And we've got to be very careful when the sin is aimed at us because often that's God's way of sharpening and humbling us, building our hearts and our character. Now, here's where I, maybe another analogy will help. You know, this house which my wife and I bought is our house, but it's our kids' home. So our kids can legitimately say, oh, that's our house. Can you come over to my house to play? But there's a point at which they're like, if they start spray painting the wall of the room, I'm like, what are you doing? It's my room. Oh, nay, nay. This is your house. It's the room I permit you to sleep in. But don't get carried away. It is our house. But don't start thinking you are me. Okay? You can share in certain things. You can relate to certain things. But don't start thinking you are equivalent to me. That your authority is equal to mine. That your ability to do things is equal to mine. I am not you. You are not me. So when you start spray painting your room and I say, don't do it, and you say, you're not the boss of me, you will find that, yes, I am indeed very much the boss of you. And praise the Lord, I can still beat up all four of my children if I had to. <clears throat> do you get what I'm saying? Is We have to be careful with anger because anger feels right all the time. When's the last time you were angry and you thought, this is wrong of me to be angry? Every time you're angry, you feel like you're right. That's why you're angry. That's why you're angry. Even if you're wrong, your brain and your heart won't let you think, I'm wrong. You're going to tell yourself, no, no, I, yes, I did something, but I only did it because they were more wrong. <laughs> That's how I'm going to live with this. The early church fathers agreed that anger, even righteous anger, is dangerous. Because we are not like God, even when the anger that begins in our hearts is righteous, like, I hate racism, I hate bigotry, I hate oppression, rape, abortion, I hate all, these are all immoral, I'm, I want to rise up against them. It could begin as righteous anger, but you've got to be careful not to let anger become a permanent resident. Anger, even righteous anger, should be a temporary condition that motivates us. It's not meant to become a permanent condition. That's because in our imperfect hearts, even righteous anger becomes destructive over time. It changes into something else. Like that bomb, you could decide you're going to use that to knock down an old blighted building to make room for a new development. But if you hold on to that bomb too long, what's, who's it going to destroy? Yeah, it's not going to destroy what you intended to destroy. It's not going to change what you intended to change. The only thing it will do is blow up in your face and destroy you. So even when the anger is legitimately righteous, you have to realize you are not perfectly righteous. I am not perfectly righteous. Even in our hearts, righteous anger that comes from God can be so quickly corrupted into something else. That's how bitter people become bitter. It often starts with a very righteous form of anger, which they nurse and they cultivate. Do you ever see Stranger Things? Anybody watch Stranger Things? Okay, I, I, I confess, I watched, I watched it. In season two, that kid feeds that little creature. He thinks it's cute. Some new lizard he's discovered. And like an idiot, he's sitting there feeding this thing. And it's growing. He's like, it's so cute. And then it dis it's like, well, anyway, I don't want to spoil it, but it ain't so cute later. That's what we do with anger. We feed it. We nurture it. We want to see it grow. We think it's our friend. 
But I'll tell you right now, even righteous anger, the desert fathers all understood this, even righteous anger becomes poison over time in us. That's because like clean water poured into a dirty bowl, the bowl changes the water often more than the other way around. Now that's the beauty of the blood of Christ. It's the one thing which enters the unclean vessel and permanently cleans it. But God's anger is not that way. And when we try to hold righteous anger, we do so to our peril. When I read the history of African Americans in this country, for example, I have to say, when I watch movies about it, when I read about it, I keep thinking to myself, what if this were Asians and not African Americans? What if it was Korean Americans? And all of this was being done to me or to those I consider my people. And the, the structural injustice and the coldness and unfairness with which it is just done, it starts to infuriate me. And I find when I'm reading those movies, I'm actually cheering for people to be killed. I'm like, kill them! Get those guys! Why won't that bomb go off? Please let it go off. And I realize what's happening to me. I see how easily even righteous anger wants to morph into violence. That's why I'm amazed. I, I was re reading um, Martin Luther King's The Strength to Love. And he writes these words. I don't know how this guy, where he stood in that moment in history, could write words like this. This is to me proof of the gospel's power. He says, returning violence for violence multiplies violence. Adding deeper darkness. Listen to this. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I think it's remarkable that he was able to say that from where he was in the time he lived in. And it always challenges me thinking about that because anger, even over righteous things, turns in my heart into something really different. I want to get him. I want him to die. I realize again and again just how unworthy a vessel I am to ever hold anger for very long. If it motivates me to get off my can, get off the couch, and actually do something in this world, not just be annoyed or judge everything, but actually start fixing some stuff, then yes, anger is the right motivation. It is, in fact, the only motivation for true reform that has ever happened in history is righteous anger that said, I'm not going to let this stand. But you cannot hold that bomb too long. Change it into redeeming work. Don't change it. Don't let it stay as anger. So we've already identified here that God is righteously angry, and at times he lends us the, the right to share in that righteous anger. But for most of us, the anger we experience, the anger in us that destroys community, starting with your family of origin, you've seen it, I'm sure. In your family of origin, anger is probably a part of the biggest, most defining stories of your family of origin. Would you agree? When you say, tell me some stories about your childhood, most people's first memories go to the significant moments where anger played a part. They don't think of the best days of their childhood. They think, oh, yeah, let me tell you about my childhood. I remember one day when my dad was, you know. And so that's what they remember. Things that, that really sharply affected them. So how do we, dis how do we uh, define or identify what Thomas Aquinas called anger disorders. Disorders of anger in the human heart, which really destroy communion with God, and ultimately it destroys community with other people. I really appreciate this list he gave us. He gave us three things. St. Thomas Aquinas said, one disorder of anger is getting angry too easily. You know, hair trigger temper. The other is getting too angry. Dude, calm down. They got your, I know you ordered Cajun fries, they gave you other fries. You don't have to blow up the place, just relax. And then staying angry too long. Are you still on that? That was like 18 years ago, you're still mad? So those are the three big disorders of anger that affect the human heart, which work directly against our ability to share life with other people very fruitfully. Can we explore each of those in turn this morning? Are you ready? 
So there's getting angry too easily. We all know someone like this who just, you know, when you think of them, you don't expect them to say positive things. So when they're like, oh, that was delightful, you're like, oh, oh, really? I thought you were going to say something snarky about it. And I was listening to a podcast called The Anthropocene um, Reviewed. It's, it's by this guy named John Green who wrote A Fault in Our Stars. Anybody see? You probably saw the movie. You probably know where you read the book. But that, this, this guy, he's, he's like a Nicholas Sparks with a, a little sarcastic side. He writes these really soft, gooey, feely things. He said, this is, the books that I'm famous for writing are nothing like the high school me. High school me was the most sarcastic, jaded, cynical, upset, angry loner you could ever meet. And he said, at one point in my life, I just stopped wanting to be defined by everything I hated. Because that's how he found his tribes. Oh, you hate those people too? Awesome. We're of a kind. And there are some people like that. Like The, the main thing you know about them is what they hate. You have no idea what they like, but you're like, oh, God. The people who are like... You hear Old Town Road playing in the story like, oh God, I hate this song. I hate this song. Good for you. Shut up about it. You hate it all by yourself. You don't need to tell us everything you hate all the time. What, why, what value do you believe that adds to our world that you catalog out loud for us everything you hate? And it's not about needing, it's about trying to, trying to create an identity for themselves. Because what they're really saying is everybody else feels this negative way about me. They've characterized me this way. they boxed me in. So I'm going to do the same back to the whole world. You don't like me the way I am. I don't like the world the way it is. I don't want to be normal like the rest of you lemmings. I know a guy who loves Apple products but refuses to start buying them. He's still on Android and PC. And he goes, yeah, I know it sucks, but I'm not going to give in. I'm like, you're a fool. Just use what's better, dude. But you know what? He just refuses to join the lemmings. And there are some people, that's what they're all about, is they're defined by what they don't like. They're negative about everything. They're quick in a trigger to, oh, God, I hate this. I hate that. I'm upset about this. I'm upset about that. It's just a habit. It's like there's something in them, and all their life, what they've seen is when you feel anything negative, let it out. Here's a gross illustration, but I think you'll never forget it. It's like when you're in an elevator and you got a fart. Like you just, you're in an elevator, it's crowded, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> We're going up to the 80th floor and you're looking around, and you're like, it's coming, guys, I'm sorry. And it's in there, it's poisoning you. You want it so badly, you feel so good to just go, Phew. just let it out. Lift the leg, do it quiet, no one will know who it was. But if you do that, are you the only one who experiences something? <laughs> You'll feel better because it was in you and you didn't want it to be in you, so you put it out of you and you feel better. But how does everybody else feel? <laughs> See, the angry people, it's become the habit of their heart that every time they feel something, they have to just let the whole world know. They have to let, they cannot process anything in here. They just have to immediately go from, I feel negative, to now you're going to feel negative. I've got a fart, you're going to enjoy my fart. Because I cannot hold anything in. I have no other place to put it, so it's going to go out into your world, and you're going to have to deal with it. And then that, you know that person who farts, and then they get out on the next floor, you're like, enjoy, thank you. And you're like, hey, not okay. But that's the emotional effect angry people have on everyone around them. Is they walk in the room and they go, bah, 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 bah. see you later. And everyone's like, what the heck was, what just happened in this room? We were all happy. Maybe we were not doing everything right, but we were like minding our business. And this tornado of anger came in, and that person's not feeling better because they let it out. And the rest of us are like, now I have that smell in my nostrils. I have to deal with that. This is the effect, consistently, that people with a quick temper, angry people, because it's not, the problem with being too easily angered is that you're angry all the time. There, not a day goes by where you're not angry about something. So, you'll, you'll never forget. Next time you're in an elevator, you're going to remember this, and God's going to grow you spiritually. <laughs> Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He's describing 
what a person gripped and shaped by the love of God looks like. When, in, in this love chapter, it's, <laughs> this chapter should be, this passage of scripture should be more than just a cross stitch that you give to newlyweds, okay? It, it should really be our gold standard for understanding what does a human life look like when it is in the grips of godly love. When the love a person says they have is actually godlike love and not just human affection. This is what love looks like. And part of his description of that godlike love is that it's not irritable or resentful. That's the ESV. The way the NIV translates it is they're not easily angered and they don't keep a record of wrongs. Ooh. <laughs> That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because that is our whole deal. Some of us are like, then what else is there in life? If you're not allowed to be easily angered or keep record of wrongs, how do you live in this world? It's all I know. It's the habit of my soul. It's what my family did growing up. I don't know any other way to deal with the failings and shortcomings of other people. I mean, if you did it to me, you did it to me. Where do I put that? You shorted me on my change. You gossiped behind my back. You ignored what I said. What am I supposed to do with that? It makes me feel yucky. What am I supposed to do with that? And what Paul says is, if, what, if the love that is in you is the love of God, one of the marks you will know that God is beginning to take over is that that quick instinct to express anger all the time, to be irritated all the time, starts to go away. And what I mean by that is not just grass up or train long enough and you shall be strong like me. It's spending real time sitting with Jesus, reflecting on what he has done for you, how he has loved you, the fact that he has not left you, has not given up on you, that when you pray, Jesus does not roll his eyes on heaven. Angels, come here. Look, look, he's, he's praying about that porn habit again. And, and I, can't, I picture a room in heaven where Jesus and all the angels are like, He's praying about that again. Oh, gosh. That's what we do. Some of us, we roll our eyes so often we can actually start seeing our brains, right? And that's how we think God must feel about us. But the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you realize, every day I stand before God in the grips of a love I will never deserve. I don't know why he's not sick of me. If he treated me the way I treated everyone who does wrong, I could not be a Christian anymore. I'd stay as far from the church as I could because it would hurt too much to be in his presence. Because every day I come to him, I've done wrong. I've failed. I've been imperfect, incomplete at some level. How on earth then do I keep approaching a God who knows everything I've done, everything that's in me, and yet it's because of his kindness and his mercy that we still have a relationship with him. It's not because we're growing. It's because he never stops being merciful. So for the person who's too easily angered, I'm not just saying mysteriously, if you're a better person, you'll have less anger. I'm saying this is the, this is the key to know. Are you spending the right kind of time with your Savior? You'll know it because the love you claim will start to change and evolve. And it will be less easily angered. And you'll be less addicted to keeping score of the wrongs people do. Paul further adds, or I'm sorry, James. Do you know, by the way, that James who wrote the epistle of James is the brother of Jesus, his younger brother? Kind of like Steve is to me. His baby brother wrote some really good stuff. I'm sad my, my baby brother's not here today this morning, but I just think how cool it would have been to grow up as Jesus' kid brother. And I think James had one of the most interesting lives of any human being on earth. And when I read his epistle, I, and I, you know, in fact, some Christian scholars wanted to throw away James from the Bible because it was too practical. I think it's fascinating that a guy who grew up as a brother of Jesus wrote the most practical epistle in the Bible. One so practical and not gooey in its theology that people are like, could this really be scripture? Yeah, the guy grew up in Jesus' house. Did any of you do that? And here's what he says. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. And who do you think he saw embody this better than anyone? 
When you grow up as someone's sibling, you see and experience all the habits of their heart, don't you? He says that everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. One of the measures of the Spirit of God taking over us is that there is a supernatural ability to not become angry even when every normal person around you is like, how are you not angry right now? I can't explain it. I know I should be angry, but anger is not what's welling up in me. I'll give you an example from my own life. Because I think this is the one thing I give glory to God that he's changed the most in me. I was a very fiery young man. A lot of emotions, raw, untamed. Steve will tell you, I was a crazy dude when I was younger. A lot of passion, no brains. That's my whole life. One of my children is very much like, a lot of passion, zero wisdom. That's me. I was one of these guys who was very angry, and the thing that triggered me the most was racial comments. I've only been in two fist fights, but one of them, I almost broke a kid's face open, like I almost damaged his cheekbone. I, was, I just remember we were playing football at school. This is at school, during school hours, and I was going out, I was wide receiver, so I was kind of going out for a pass running backwards, and he knew I always ran backwards, so he knelt down like this, and I tripped over his body, I hit my head, the wind got knocked out of me, and he goes, did you have a nice trip, Tojo? That's what kids back in the 80s, it was actually late 70s, that's what they called people who they thought you were Japanese, Tojo. Like, First of all, wrong race, you ignoramus, but <clears throat> he was trying to belittle me, and I was like, oh no, you did not just go racial on me. And I lost it, and I just, I sat on his face, on his chest, and I just pounded. And some guys pulled me, I didn't know how long I saw his face, it was just a mess. That's how easily triggered I was by racial stuff. No one calls me a chink, a gook, Chinaman, nothing. Zipperhead, so many. Today, totally different. About 10 years ago, I was at, at Charlotte, North Carolina, at a Bass Pro out, and this is like, in Charlotte, that's like Hillbilly HQ, right there. And it was the, the Bass headquarters uh, that was right by the Charlotte Raceway, the, the Speedway, where they run the, um, the Coca-Cola 500. That's the Super Bowl of NASCAR. So I'm there when there's 200,000 people gathering at the Raceway for the Super Bowl of NASCAR. And there's his son and his, his dad. Dad's dressed like an accountant, just blue Oxford khakis. But he sees me and my Asian friend, these two of us, we're, we're in the fishing lure department. I don't know what we were doing in the fishing lure department. But my friend, he's an avid fisherman. He's like, I got to get me some lures while we're here. So we're there. And the, the dad and, and his kid come around the corner and go, ching chong, bing bong. <laughs> my friend... My, my Korean friend who was with me is actually, um, he's a former gangbanger from New York City. And I once asked him, Sam, how many people have you killed? And he goes, I don't know. I stabbed so many and ran, I have no idea how many of them survived. So I look up, he's a pastor now too, okay? <laughs> you want to become a pastor, just be really bad for a while, and then God will get you. <laughs> and I look over at Sam, and this is all I see, I just see him goes, his jaw clenched a little, the vein throbbed, and then the Lord. And I noticed the whole time, I'm like, had that been me in high school? And I'm in a store full of knives, machetes, bows and arrows. I think I would have gone ballistic. And I just remember going, huh. I can't believe this grown man just did that. It's hilarious. And I, we prayed for him. And I think how... Crazy it is to be so one way at one stage of your life and so completely changed into another way. And not the level of trained habit, but that thing that wells up inside is different. It's just like when you are a couch potato and then you begin to get healthier and you start eating cleaner. At first you're like, I cannot look at any more vegetables. But after a while, you start developing a taste for clean food, and the thought of a Twinkie makes you physically ill, like, Oop! 
I can't, eat, I can't even think about eating that. I just want something clean. It's that thing where it starts with discipline, but soon it becomes you. God is changing you on the inside. I know what it's like to feel angry quickly. I felt everything quickly. I still have that side of me. I'm like, oh, I want to do this. Two minutes later, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm just like that all over the place. But in this area, I have seen the transformation of God. He says that if you are like Jesus, you will be slower to anger. It's one of the ways you measure, am I becoming more like Jesus? Is that I am slower to anger. Notice, and everybody's parents or school teachers said this to me, you have two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk. You guys heard that before, right? Are you serious? You've never... Oh, well, I made that up. So I'm the first one to ever say that. You have two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk. All they're doing is quoting the brother of Jesus. Shut up and listen. When people are making you angry, shut up and listen. Because you'd probably have tried and sentenced them in a matter of two seconds without really knowing at all what's going on. When parents say to children, why did you do that? It's always rhetorical. It's never an actual question. Why did you do that? It's never like, why did you do that? What made you decide that was a good? Why did you do that? Why did you put your sister's head in the door? Why? But we say it as an accusation, not as an actual question. Why? What if we started asking real questions? Like, why are you acting that way? Why on earth would you behave this way? Paul Tournier, who is a Swiss physician, maybe the most famous Swiss physician ever, (laughs) in the great panoply of Swiss physicians in history. He's the only one I know. He wrote this because he's also kind of a philosopher. And he wrote, listen to the conversations of our world between nations as well as between couples, they are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. It's like deaf people trying to have a conversation and nobody knows sign language, no one knows how to read lips. We're just shouting nonsense at each other and having no idea what the other person's saying. That's what marriages feel like. That's what families feel like. That's what nations feel like. Just look at our country today. You want to ruin a dinner party? Just go, hey, how do you feel about President Trump? What's your take on immigration? What do you think about all this transgender, gender dysphoria stuff? And nobody at that point will be in listening mode from that point on. Everyone's like, oh, you triggered me now. Sit down and shut up. I'm going to spew for about an hour in all caps. And you're just going to listen. You're trying to change the thinking. Yeah, but how about, no, stop. You're wrong. Nobody's listening anymore. I want to introduce this guy. This, does anybody know who this guy is? He looks like he should be famous, right? I mean, he just has that look. His name is Theo E.J. Wilson. I listened to him on a TED Talk about maybe five years ago, I think. And he, it was one of the most memorable TED Talks I've ever heard. He's obviously a black American, and he was caught up in all of the, it was post-Charlottesville. He was really upset about what was happening in Charlottesville. But then he realized everyone around him was just like him. He was living in an echo chamber where, yes, they may be on the right side of the issue, but they were just reinforcing their point of view all day long to each other and going, high five, we're the good guys. And the way they talked about the people on the alt-right side was like just having light skin makes you evil. He knew that couldn't be true. But there was this dehumanizing way that they were talking about and conceiving of the other side because at some point they just kept talking and never listening. So he did something remarkable. He went undercover on these alt-right, ultra-white supremacist um, websites, neo-Nazi websites, and he joined as a member and got on the forums and started chatting. And he said for the first two weeks, he had to suppress his gag reflex because there was so much hate and racism being spewed. He was having like an allergic reaction to it. But then he started really reading what these people were saying. He said, I cannot agree 
with their position or their decision or their language. But I was shocked to discover something was growing in me. Do you know what that was? And he says, strangely enough, I started to develop an unexpected compassion for the alt-right. Because what I began to see is they are not just hateful, they are genuinely distressed. Even if they're wrongly distressed, these are people who believe they're being persecuted just for what color their skin is. They're, being, they're having things weighed against them. They're being prefer, preferentially not chosen for things because they were white, and they're not going to take it anymore. He said, isn't that exactly the anger I feel? Now, it may be different, and politically, you cannot equate the two. But what he's saying is, if you listen truly to your enemy, you realize they are also fallen human beings. He cannot ever go as far as saying, I sympathize with their position. But he said, once I humanize them again, I could start to deal with this issue in a more productive way. Instead of shouting louder from my side of the street, I began to cross. And I was blown away by his testimony. I thought, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. This is not a Christian forum. But it was more gospel-like than anything I'd heard on race in a long time. Do you really listen to the people who set you off and trigger you all the time? Are your questions only rhetorical and never real? Let me give you another point here. The second disorder is getting too angry. This one I'll, I'll go through a little faster. Are you one of those people who frequently hears others tell you, all right, calm down. Take it easy. Relax. Do you ever get frustrated because you're like, everyone's always trying to shush me. Tell me to be quiet, to calm down. I'm overreacting, and I can't stand it. Well, maybe, just maybe, you might have a problem with anger. If so many people are constantly saying to you, all right, chill, take it easy. It's not that the reason you're upset is invalid. You might be entirely within your rights to say, I'm irritated. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've told you 20 times, Monday you take the garbage out. Why is it midnight and I'm staring at garbage cans in my garage? Now, I'm in my right to be irritated by that because there's 20 times when you're a teenager, it's your one job, it should get done. So it's like I'm wrong, but it's the way that I'm irritated. That somehow it feels like a little too much. What kids might say is you're, you're, you're being extra. It's a little, or Koreans say, Oba, it's over. It's too much. Calm yourself. Yes, it's bad, but it's not as bad as what you're doing. Here's, here's another way of saying it. People who become too angry let their anger become the primary issue now. In fact, their reaction to what was wrong eclipses what was actually wrong. You know, people like this who, yes, the situation needs to be addressed, but now the new thing in the room that everyone is dealing with is not the failing, the wrongness of what someone else did. It's your reaction and the emotional impact of that reaction. That's what everyone's dealing with. Nobody even remembers. Nobody can even remember what were you so mad about. I, I ask people this all the time in counseling. Tell me about the maddest your parents ever got. Oh, man. And then here's what they almost always say. I don't even remember what he got mad about. Isn't that remarkable? Because if you ask the dad, he go, oh, I remember what I got mad about. They left the dishes dirty in the sink again and didn't rinse them. Oh, man, I remember because that's all he's thinking is I have a legitimate right to be mad. The kids only remember dad went insane and we don't even remember what triggered it. All we remembered in the narrative of my life history was dad got really mad once and he popped him in the mouth and he split his lip. That's what I remember. Dad is trying to teach and reinforce good discipline. That's what dad should do. But the way he did it made his anger the new issue and the only memory that lasts. That kid is probably still leaving unrinsed dishes in their adult sink and driving their spouse crazy. Because where they were supposed to learn an issue of their own behavior, they have now been, that issue has been replaced with the the bright, shining, flaming sun of your anger over their issue, that has become the new star of the show. It's like the co-star comes in and goes, I'm going to outact you in every scene. You're like, that's not supposed to happen. It's supposed to be my movie. 
We don't let it be their movie. We let our response to them become the new show. Are you feeling a little what I'm saying here? Are you, are you understanding that the dynamic is, it's right to be upset about certain things, to, to just say, hey, I'm not going to just let this go. You need to be corrected. But sometimes when you're too angry for the situation, it's not just that you do damage, that you eclipse the actual issue. You make people blind to the original offense. And now your sin of anger is the only thing people are dealing with and remembering. And part of the reason that becoming too angry is dangerous is because we don't just get too angry, but when we're that angry, that righteously angry, in our minds anyway, justified with angry, very often we sin in our anger. The anger that we're triggered in is not the problem. God says, okay, you're right. As a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, you should be addressing that issue. You can't just let that slide. But that doesn't mean that because you're justifiably upset that everything you do to express that is okay too. It's possible to be appropriately angry but sin in that appropriate anger. I see some people at my church do this. They are on the right side of an issue, social, moral, political, but they say it in a way that dishonors the Lord. They're spewing venomous language Putrid, foul, profane language, devoid of any love, uncaring about whether the people hearing on the other side will ever be won over to you. You just want to hurl flaming balls over the wall and kill them all. That's clearly what's intended. And I challenge them and they say, in light of all this immorality, you think God cares about what language I'm using? I'm like, humbly if I may submit, sir, yes. Yes. Of course he still cares about your language. We are saved through language. Words are how we came to apprehend what God's done for us. You think words don't matter? Read the Bible. Words matter a lot. Out of the same mouth can you have curses and praise flow from the same source. You can be on the right side of something and do it the wrong way and in your anger clearly be sinning and adding more destruction, more darkness to what's already out there. That's why I I don't go on Facebook much anymore. It's a wasteland of stupid people. I'm sorry if you're on Facebook. I'm just saying, the stuff about your family, that's not stupid. And anyone who goes, let me tell you about how I feel about this, I'm like, just stop. I no longer care to hear from people who don't hear. And I no longer care to listen to the opinions of people who think that their opinion entitles them, gives them a license to be sloppy in every other thing. And when I've tried to take the risk to challenge them, they are not having it. Because what they're saying is, my anger is justified. You really think God cares about this other stuff? See, when you feel justifiably angry, you believe that gave you a ticket, a lesson. There you go. Now you can do whatever you want because... Who would blame you? I mean, if, you, if your spouse was unfaithful, if your friend betrayed you, if your boss fired you unethically, should you be, okay? should you be happy about that? No. But then, does that legitimate offense give you a license to do whatever you want in response? You still walk before Jesus in every valley of your life. We are still accountable. I really appreciate what Pastor Reggie said during the praise prayer. He said, though you have strong feelings, God has also given us a will. Right? A will that can override those feelings. That's what separates us from the animals. It's the one thing that primarily separates us from the animals. Animals feel everything we feel, but they can't, you know, when my dog just goes... You know, she pees on the floor. I'm like, what is that? You know better. No, she actually doesn't. She's an animal. She goes, I had to pee and I just peed. She doesn't hold it. or She's an animal. Go to the zoo. Look at the animals. They do whatever they feel. That's what an animal is. It is like an id. No filter. Are there times when because you are legitimately upset, 
you actually believe God turned a blind eye to you and said, whatever you do next is because of them. See, the thing about angry people is that they almost never look at themselves beyond the offense. Because it's you, what you did. It's like every abusive person in a family. Look what you made me do. Whack. Look what you made me do. That's pretty close to home for some of us, isn't it? To be struck in anger and be told you forced that. You caused that. No, that was a choice by a person filled with anger that had not been redeemed. You did something wrong. I'm not letting you off the hook. Take the garbage out on Monday night. Grow up. But did that generate the need for that sin to follow? Who should take responsibility for that? I'm so grateful that it was the brother of Jesus who wrote those words. Because that tells me that he grew up in a house for 30 years watching Jesus before he got famous live out his life. And he said, this is what I remember. You couldn't get this guy angry, man. And when he was upset, he would always listen. He would listen and really hear what was going on with you. Let me give you one last thing here. Some of you, this is your issue, is you never let it go. You are like an elephant. I, I've, you know those, those retreats where the speaker goes, um, we're going to do some reconciling ministry. If there is something you have against someone in this room, I want you to pray about it. Then walk up to them and just take the risk and, and say, look, I've hated you for a while and I just want to ask for your forgiveness and forgive you. And, and in college, we had a retreat like that and there was a line forming in front of me. <laughs> like, Dang, how many people have I ticked off? And I thought I was kind of nice. And, th- and it was all girls. I heard a lot of girls growing up, apparently. The amazing thing is, as one after another came up to me, and they're saying, here's what, here's the crazy thing, I didn't remember a single one of the incidents. Like, how long have you been holding this? I was a fifth-year senior that year. Like, you did this four years ago, and now he's a freshman. I'm like, sorry, you've been living with this for four years. I don't even remember they're like, yeah, you, I was like, hi, Dave. And you're like, whatever, and you just walk past me. I don't remember that at all. I was probably not even paying attention. And you've nursed this for four years and thought I hated you. How sad that we could have been friends. Now, I'm not putting it back on them. It was all your fault. I'm saying, you, it was such a small thing. You could have just addressed it. We could have let it go and worked it out. But you held it. And I don't know why you held it. Why that was your preferred view of me. Because we hadn't known each other long enough for you to have that opinion of me yet. But why did you nurse that and feed it? Give it crackers and talk sweetly to it and let it never die. How could you have nursed it that long? Some of us in this room have anger and unforgiveness that is like decades old. In some cases, the offending person has passed away. Reconciliation, repentance is not even earthly possible. What do you do with that? What do you do when the father who hurt you is dead? And he never said the words you needed to hear. What can you do about that? It's the only option to be a bitter person for the rest of your life. Paul says in Ephesians, in your anger do not sin. And here's one of the ways you keep from sinning in your anger is Don't let anger stay on the shelf too long. Don't let the sun go down. This has cost Jeannie quite a bit, especially here in our relationship, because she she grew up in a family where if you're upset, you just sleep on it. The next day, you're less upset. Right? You just sort of, I wouldn't do that. So we had so many late night talks in the stairwell of Wardall dormitory, because I wasn't supposed to technically be in the dorm, and... You know, so we're in the stairwell just talking, and she's like, oh, God, I'm getting so sleepy. I'm like, yeah, but the sun's, I'm not going to let, the, the sun had technically gone down, so let's not be Pharisees about it. It was like three in the morning, but I just didn't like going to bed on it because I wouldn't wake up and find that I was fresh. I would find that it had fermented. 
That cabbage would turn to kimchi overnight. I know it won't happen. <laughs> What's, what happens when you cut off and you go onto your separate corners? You're still fighting the fight, but without the benefit of the other person's voice. You're fighting it all by yourself with a straw man. Oh, yeah? Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And no one talks back. You're like, see, I was right. So he says, don't let the sun go down. Deal with those things now. Whether it's the repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, or just hashing it out and saying, we're not done. We've got to shelve this. But you know that I have a problem with that. Let's keep working at it. This relationship is worth fighting for. Even righteous anger can spoil over time. I've known some people who started in such righteous anger over a crusade, and it turned into something much darker over time. Militant, violent. And forgiveness is so wrapped up in all of this. If we have not cultivated a capacity to forgive, we will likely be that person who stays angry way too long. You cannot nurture prolonged anger and grudges if you know how to forgive. Let me, let me finish with a story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Will Willeman, who's a Methodist bishop, by the way, is there any way to make this room cooler? I feel like I'm on fire right now. Thank you. All right. So, um, let me just finish with this. Will Willeman is a Methodist bishop. He wrote a book called Sinning Like a Christian. It was a book on the seven deadly sins. And on this chapter on wrath, he tells a story of a woman he met. God bless you. Thank you. He wrote of a woman he met in Belfast, Northern Ireland, who during the Troubles watched as... <clears throat> something happened. Oh. Okay, so she watched as some men approached her husband's car as he got into the car in front of the house to, to go to work. She was holding their little baby daughter, and they were standing at the door saying goodbye, and some men walked up to the car and just shot him in the face five times. Died right there in front of them. And then they began shooting at the door, and they shut the door and she hid. And so basically she watched her husband murdered in cold blood in front of their house, and their daughter saw it too. And... Will Willeman met her and asked, how did you ever move on from that? How did you ever let that go? I mean, that's not the kind of thing like you... That's not where you line up at a retreat and go, you didn't say hi to me four years ago. This is legitimately like, I don't know if I could let that go. If someone shot Jeannie in front of my house, I don't know that I'd ever be able to get to it. So I, I'm struggling. I'm like on the edge of my seat going, what is she going to say? Her answer drove me to tears. I was sitting in my office crying reading this. I cry a lot more as I've gotten older. Here's what she says. Well, that very moment, as I stood there over his horribly bloody body, I started saying the Lord's Prayer. I got as far as forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. And I said at that point, Lord, you have forgiven so many of my sins. So I guess you expect me to forgive others of their sins. I will try to do that, but you'll have to help me every day not to be destroyed by anger. Every day. And the Lord gave me that wonderful gift. I was able to forgive. I let God be angry with them or punish them or forgive them or whatever the Lord chose to do with them. I chose to forgive. The gunman killed one of the most wonderful men in the world, and none of them was ever convicted of the crime. But my anger was no match for God. God wouldn't let the anger of it all kill me. There is no other way to let go of anger except through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not willpower, it's not bigness of heart. There is only one power that will give us the capacity to forgive others when they've clearly hurt us and betrayed us. 
And the one most set free is not the offender, it's us. That's who God is loving when we forgive. He is loving us, setting us free. Peter, how, how are we on time? We should be ending right now, right? Okay, so I'm going to stop. I'm not going to give you the last two. If you want to come talk to me during free time, there were two practical applications that I think will help you, but you can come find me during free time if you'd like to hear what they are. I may also write up my sermon notes just as a PDF to share with you so you can kind of think about it more if you'd like to do that. <clears throat> I, I'm going to dismiss you. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to give you a, a little bit of instruction, and there'll be some announcements. Um, but let's pray. God, thank you for showing us that anger does not have to be a fire that consumes us and everyone around us. We live in a world full of broken, sinful people, and we also are sinful, broken people. Is it any wonder that we should offend and hurt each other every day? That we fail and others fail us every day? Don't let us be destroyed by anger. Teach us how to listen. To not be so quick to be angry. Teach us in our anger not to sin and add more to the darkness. Help us to let go of lingering bitterness through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.